0: The Lord be with you. O God, who taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending to them the light of your Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy comfort through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, the last part of the Lord's Prayer section of the Catechism uh, deals with uh, not any one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Remember, that the Lord's Prayer is uh, seven petitions, is what it says. Uh, that's kind of the traditional ordering of the Lord's Prayer. But in the end, there's this wonderful section on a rule of prayer uh, and uh, reading of Scripture and worship. Um, and uh, the way I'd like to describe this, since a lot of you were not, have not been here for the last few weeks, um, a rule is... you know. Rule is a word that gets a really bad rap these days. It's like um, you know, people think, "Oh, a rule!" Blah. I don't want a rule. It's like, well, but you use rules all the all the time. I mean, come on. Uh, give you a few examples. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that just drives me crazy about Texans is how nice they are, and. Uh, you know, you go to a four-way stop, and it's like, no, 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 you first. No, 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 you first. No, no, you first. And no one cares about right-of-way rules, but it, they're good rules, right? Because they keep traffic accidents from happening, right? Um, another example is something like this: that uh, I'm doing a renovation on our bathroom, and uh, and I was thinking, oh, I need to put snap lines on the floor, and then I realized that the Hardybacker people had done me a great service by putting out, you know, one-inch square markings on the back of their concrete board, and it's like. Yes, now I don't have to do any of that uh, SnapLine stuff because I can just align it to the board and everything's good. Um, And and the reason I say all this is that we love to measure the rightness of things according to some kind of standard, right, Um, and the word rule uh, actually in Latin is the word regula, um, and it's where we get everything, regulations, um, regulations, uh, it is, it's how we regulate uh, things. And so the Apostles' Creed, for instance, is called, um, among the fathers, the regula fide, the, the, the rule of faith. Um, and the Lord's Prayer has often constituted the rule of prayer. Um, in fact, uh, one of the things that, that emerges is this understanding of what we call Christian orthodoxy. Um, and that word in, in Greek means I feel like I'm on my big fat Greek wedding, but it's, uh, it's ortho, meaning straight, right? An orthodontist is one who makes your teeth straight. Ortho meaning straight, teeth being, got it. Okay, <laughs> and, and so orthodoxy is right teaching, but it's actually, uh, it's actually deeper than that because the word doxa um, in Greek uh, means not only teaching, but, but glory, Um, And so the ancient church believed that the way to give right glory to God is to teach the right things, to worship in the right way, and to live in the right way. And these all go together and they form orthodoxy. Now, there have been people who have tried to parse this out and they've said, well, you've got orthodoxy, you've got orthopraxy, you've got all these other kinds of orthos. Uh, But for the ancient church, there's one. It's orthodoxy. It's the whole thing. It's, It's right liturgical practice. It's right praying, right believing, right worship. All those things go together. And here's the understanding that I really want you to get, which is that um, a person can believe all the right things and still not be spiritually whole or well. Um, Just like a person can know everything there is to know about physical fitness and still be unfit, right? Uh, Just like a person can know everything about driving properly and what? Yeah. Wreck the car all the time, right? Um, and so the the reality of it is that, that faith and practice go together, and uh, you know, and this is straight out of scripture, right? It's like uh, James is a great example of this. You know, show me your faith apart from works. Where is it? What's it, you know, what's it like? Um, and so we see, right, that faith apart from works is what dead, kaput, right? Um, and uh, so this is a really important thing, and and the catechism grounds this in. Right faith, right prayer, right action. All these three go together. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Ten Commandments, they all all coalesce around these ideas. Um, And um, and this actually relates to the the great kind of three transcendentals, right? Truth, beauty, goodness. Uh, It relates to the great theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. Um, And we see that they're all interrelated. Um, So, just a, just a thought for today, uh, but regular. Let's get back to this idea of a rule. Uh, a rule of prayer is necessary, uh, just like, and I use this example often. Um, it's 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 tomato growing season in the in the great state of Texas, right? Um, and as one song, one Texas songwriter puts it, there are only two things that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, and. Uh, and The the key to growing good homegrown tomatoes is what? Lots of water, lots of sun, and you have to give them a trellis. And the trellis basically shows the plant which way is up. Because otherwise it will drag on the ground and your tomatoes will rot. And they'll get eaten by bugs. Um, But if you show them what up is, then you'll have a really great crop of tomatoes. A rule of prayer shows us what direction is up. Up. And it allows us to regulate our life of prayer according to a rule of life. Um, and that rule is how you determine, are things going well or are things going poorly? Am I living in spiritual health or spiritual disease? Am I progressing forward? Um, part of the issue is that Christians who've lived without a rule uh, wind up in spiritual congestion. And I, I love using that phrase because, you know, uh, we, we Way Cohens do not know traffic very well at all anymore. Uh, and, and if you've lived in a place that has traffic and then you move to Waco, it's like, oh, geez, this is amazing. <laughs> like, uh, you know, I haven't been caught in traffic in so long, I don't even know. Uh, but but it's miserable, isn't it? I mean, being caught in traffic is like one of the worst things in the world, and I've got a car that doesn't like to idle, and I keep thinking like, in the middle of traffic, like, this is gonna be a disaster. Uh, but 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 consider it for a moment that that Spiritual congestion means you're going nowhere. You're not going forward. You haven't grown at all. Um, you, are, you are lethargic spiritually. Um, and, and one of the things that I would suggest that you must have if you've gone into this place of complacency, lack of growth, is to get yourself a rule of life. Um, well, why? Well, it's as all the great kind of people like Stephen Covey and Zig Ziglar say, right? It's the difference between a plan you do and a plan you don't do is whether or not it's written down. If you write it down, you'll do it. If you don't write it down, you won't do it. Um, It's very simple and it's just sort of a fact of human nature that writing things down tells you this is important and so I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna do it right. Um, It's just like going to the grocery store, right? Every bit of research we have says people who go to the grocery store without a list, what do they do? They spend more money, they they throw out a lot more food than the than their peers, um, and uh, and you know, sometimes there's a time and a place for going into a grocery store without a plan because you wanna be creative, right? But it's not a good normal practice. You gotta, you gotta sort of like, you gotta go into the plan. Uh, just like me going into Home Depot without a plan is a total unmitigated disaster. Okay, I did that yesterday and walked out with a digital uh, boroscope, so there you are. Um, So, we've been talking about this, and and I want to kind of bring you all up to date, but uh, we're talking about what nurtures a fruitful life of prayer. And according to Anglicanism, I'll just say this, according to Anglicanism, uh, it's always a combination of three things. Um, The the Anglican rule of life is as follows. It's uh, weekly communion, um, daily office, and private devotion. And you'll note that all three, includes some manner of the reading of scripture, some form of prayer. Uh, Well, it's all prayer. Um, And and so today we gather to celebrate the Eucharist. What are we going to do? We're going to read scripture. We're going to meditate on scripture. We're going to receive communion. And then throughout the week, you have the daily office. What are you going to do? You're going to read scripture. You're going to meditate on scripture and you're going to pray, right? And think about private devotions as a part of everyone's private devotion, should be some mode of reading through Scripture, right? Um, well, the daily office already gives you a way to read Scripture completely, like all the time, lots of Scripture. Um, but I think it's also good to be studying some kind of book constantly, some some book of Scripture constantly. Um, and so we've talked about that. We we spent time last week talking through that. Okay, now we're on to prayer. We're on page 83 in the Catechism, and we're looking at, uh, we've we've looked thus far... Um, at the forms of prayer, and, uh, and we've gone through all of those, uh, and you can you can review those at your at your leisure. Uh, but what is praise? You know, it's it's to glorify God. What is petition? It's to make requests of God. What is intercession? It's to make requests uh, to God on behalf of others, uh, the church, and the world. Um, prayers of confession um, and other prayers that are not included in the Lord's Prayer. But but um, I, I would hand this to you as part of uh, part of your. Uh, your uh, your um, private reading. So let's let's start up with corporate worship on page two hundred forty-four. Oh, not page two hundred. Question two hundred forty-four on page eighty-five. What is liturgy? Liturgy is an established pattern or form for the worship of God by God's people. The liturgy leads us in the remembrance of God's mighty acts and unites us in grateful response. Okay, Leiturgia in the Greek, which you may know this, in, in the ancient world the first, first few centuries, uh, the, the, the lingua franca, which was not a thing then, but it would be later, uh, was, was not Latin, but it was Greek. Um, Greek was spoken and read throughout the whole Roman world. Um, it was the language of trade, it was the language which people spoke. Um, except in Rome where people spoke Latin. Okay, But the word laeturgia in Greek means public works. Okay, so if, if the Greeks were to have something like a, a water meter reader's truck, they would put the word laeturgia on the side of the truck. Okay? And in fact, you can actually see Roman, or, uh, Roman ruins and Greek ruins that use this word laeturgia. Why? Well, because it's, these are works that are done on behalf of the people for the people. Okay? So uh, it's, it's kind of like work done by the people for the people for their, for their behalf. Now... Uh, And this is why in histories they'll recount the public works of the emperor, the public works of Julius Caesar or whoever it might be, right? And part of the thing is, uh, this is where it's really fun, in the the Greek, um, evangelion, which is the gospel, and laeturgia are almost the same thing um, in in the Greek. Think about it. The emperor comes through and says, "I have glad tidings, Evangelion. And what is it? I'm going to build you an aqueduct. I'm going to build you a road. You're going to have toilets. Like you pagans are going to start to have nice things. So this is the good news that I, being the emperor, or the or the the messenger of the emperor, are bringing to you. And the good news is what? The public works." Right. Okay. So, so I love that scene in um, in uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian where they're all saying, you know, what have the Romans ever done for us? And of course, they say the aqueducts and the schools and the plumbing and all this. Okay. Um, but but what they're doing is they it's a riff on like, hey, the Romans do a lot of public works. That's their that's their M O. Right. I mean, one of the things you start to appreciate about the ancient world is that. Uh, The way that colonization is done progresses very, very, very quickly to up to the Romans where the idea is not uh, lay siege to your city, kill everyone, and then take it for ourselves. No, it's not lay siege to the city, kill all the men, leave the women, uh, get them pregnant and then leave it, right? It's not also like take all the smart people into exile in the big city where we can have all the culture and all the joy, which is the Babylonians. Um, and it's not the Greeks, which the Greeks are traveling colonists, right? They go out as far as they can possibly go and this is Julius Caesar in Persia, right? I mean, he gets as far as he can possibly go, and then his supply lines stretch out, and he's done, right? Can't can't keep going, can't keep paying his men. They get you know they get upset. Um, what the Romans figure out is this: with the conquering army, you have to send engineers because if you give the people that you've conquered a better life, they will thank you for it. And they will become subservient, and they will love you, and they will be uh, well. They will they will be united in grateful response to the emperor. Okay, so get this: this is the language that Christians choose to use. It's contemporary language for what the gospel does, and so the good news of Jesus Christ should lead us to the glad response of Laetorgia, right? Uh, this this liturgy, this work done on behalf of the people. So the church's liturgy is both a work done in thanksgiving to God for his great work, but it's also to enter into that work. Okay, so all of this goes around in circles. To, to enter into the liturgy is to enter into the work of God, which is work that's done on behalf of the people, and it's work that we do, right? So I think these liturgies often translated work of the people, which is not a bad translation, but it's actually even better to say, um, work done on behalf of the people. Because remember, one of the reasons we gather to celebrate the Eucharist is just as Jesus says, uh, the bread which I shall give is my flesh for what? The life of the world. Okay. Um, look, the creation in which we live is a sanctuary for the worship of God. That's what it's supposed to be. right? Think about the creation story. What is it? It's a story of building a place where God is worshipped. That's what's going on in the creation story. It's not just sort of a place where human beings can eat and be filled. It's a place where God is worshipped. Um, well, consider it for a moment. Right? You have this. You have this building of and um, in the, in the creation of uh, firmaments, waters above the firmament, waters in the waters in the beneath. Right? And so, rain is good. Floods are bad. Right? Sometimes they coincide. Um, but rain comes from God. Floods come from hell. It's this kind of weird idea. But anyway, I'm, I'm going off on all sorts of things. But look, the reality of it is that um, all these things have to sort of come together. And Christians look forward to a renewed creation in which um, the work of God and the work of the people are the same work. That's what glory is, by the way. That's, that's what entering into glory is, where uh, we, we actually recognize our own ungloriousness when we Undertake works that directly contradict God—that's sin, right? Um, but but see, the great thing about the leitourgia is that we enter into it, uh, and and we are redeemed, and we're entering into God's work on on our behalf. Okay, so we're literally—I mean, this is the thing I really want you to get about Christian liturgy: we are literally entering into the gospel and the work of the gospel. Okay, which is which is a. It'll tell you something, right? I mean, I think most Christians have this kind of idea of, well, evangelism is something we do outside the church, like out on the streets, maybe. And worship is something we do inside. And they're different. They're distinct. Okay. And more or less, some people will say, evangelism's more important than worship. Because, you know, if you don't evangelize, people will go to hell. Okay, fine. Some people say, but worship is really more important, so we're just going to do that, right? Not do evangelism, right? But see, look, in the liturgy, what do we have? <laughs> this constant reminder. Like, both, 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 both. Worship's more important, by the way, but both, 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 both right? Because what's recited every single, every single time we celebrate the Eucharist? It's, it's, it's the great commandment, right? Um, you know, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So all the commandments are fulfilled in this way. And actually what we do in the liturgy, so that, that's actually not just sort of like a, a throwaway. Um, that was actually one of the most genius additions of uh, Thomas Cramer in, Re- in the Reformation was. He didn't change much in the, in the initial prayer books, but he changed that. He put in the great commandment in the midst of the, of the liturgy. Why? Um, well, it was either that or you recite the Ten Commandments, but, you know, ideally both, right? Um, why do you do it? Well, you do it because you remind yourself you're entering into the liturgy to love God and love your neighbor. So what we do in this church, it's not just about uh, worshiping God and leaving the rest behind. We enter into this church to love God and love our neighbor. Um, not only to love the neighbor who's sitting next to you and singing next to you, sometimes badly, uh, but, but to love the neighbor who's next door, to love the neighbor who's, who's right next to you. Um, and so that's a, that's a massive thing. Because, look, the reality of it is that if you're not willing to pray for the salvation of your neighbor— then you're probably not going to evangelize them. Like, if you're not willing to bring them written on your heart to the liturgy, then you're probably not going to share the gospel with them. And, and, you know, part of this, too, is love your neighbor as yourself. What do we do in the liturgy? We enter into the gospel for ourselves. Because, look, the reality of it is if you are not willing to enter into uh, the life of God uh, for your own sake, how the heck are you supposed to do it for others' sake? Um, and so this is really key. I mean, I, I keep going back to this, that, that um, people who try, who attempt evangelism from a place of spiritual congestion are really the blind leading the blind. Um, and, and so part of this is, you know, get your house in order. And part of the way you get your house in order is by saying, what does order look like? Okay. Well, that's why we call it, what, an order of service, right? That's like the most basic liturgical form, is an order of service. Okay, but I'm, I'm going on and on and on. Um, but yes, the liturgy leads us in the remembrance of God's mighty acts and unites us in grateful response. At the heart of the Eucharistic, uh, at the heart of the Eucharistic liturgy is the proclamation of the kerygma, the gospel. The, the, the gospel is proclaimed. It actually used to be in the first three centuries of Christian practice that no one but the bishop could celebrate the Eucharist priests didn't celebrate the Eucharist they were sort of like elders in the church like it was more like a Presbyterian model with the bishop at the head but but here's the deal like the reality of it is that only the bishop could do it because only he as an apostle and successor to the Apostles could articulate in his own terms in his own words extemporaneously right because the Eucharist used to be celebrated extemporaneously uh, the gospel. Okay? Um, and so it's an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and this unites God's people um, in, in this remembrance of God's, of God's acts and it, and it unites us in grateful response. Okay. Why do Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy? Anglicans worship with a structured liturgy because it embodies biblical patterns of worship, fosters reverence and love for God, deepens faith in Jesus Christ, and is in continuity with the practices of Israel and the early church. Okay, I'm gonna break this down. Structured liturgy simply simply means what it says, uh that, that there's structure, right? Um it's it's not sort of free-form building. Um you know, I'm I'm super into home renovations and things like that, uh, but but I'm a I'm also a planner, right? I want to know what tile are we putting on the walls before I demo them, right? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? And, and, you know, let's, let's wait and see isn't going to work. And I, look, I'm a P, okay, by the Myers-Briggs. Like, I hate that, but I know it's necessary because I know you have to plan it. Because if, if you don't plan it and you don't make judgments about what, what you're going to do, you're going to, you're going to fall on your butt and you're going to, you're going to have major repercussions down the road. So everything has to be planned. Um, liturgy works in a similar structure in that, um, you know, there's, there's order to it. Um, now, there's this kind of antiquarian idea that floats around in the church, which is like, hey, back in the ancient church they didn't do that. They didn't have order and structure. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely did. Why? Well, because they were Jews. And, and Jews outside of wacky, you know, uh, um, you know, desert types, Shiparti basically, uh, have structured liturgy. And there is a time when anyone who wants to say something or read scripture can, um, but it's very structured. There's structure, absolutely there's structure. Um, the ancient Christians uh, actually worshiped in the temple, which had very structured worship. Um, so structured worship is, is part of the church's practice. Um, it, it is it definitely in continuity with the practice of Israel in the early church. And furthermore, I should note this, Jesus himself practices structured liturgy. Um, how, why, why would we say that well he goes into the synagogue he goes and worships in the temple what do you think he's doing there um, sort of like off worshiping on his own no no there's structure to it um, well what, is, what do we say about this it embodies embodies is such a good, such a good word right? because look we don't come into church and say like, okay, so my body's just sort of here, like my little meat suit that I wear on a regular basis. Like the, the real thing that I'm exercising is my spirit or my soul, but my body's just sort of there. Like, no. Uh, liturgy, good structured liturgy says, nope, you are a body and a soul and a spirit, however you want to parse that out. Lots of different takes on that. But you're all those things, right? And, and um, so you worship not only with your mind, but with your body as well. Um, And so this up and down, this kind of like uh, well, the Vatican rag sort of thing, you know, you stand up, you sit down, you kneel, you do all these things, right? Well, well, why? Because you're an embodied person, right? And these things have to be embodied. Um, And it embodies biblical patterns of worship, fosters reverence and love for God, deepens faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I love that, fosters reverence and love for God. So, how is it that worshiping according to a structured liturgy it fosters reverence and love of God? Okay. So, uh, I love to cook, love to cook. And for the first part of my life, I learned to cook according to a recipe. I still cook according to recipes. I bake according to recipes because baking on my own creatively is always a disaster and the cupcakes never rise. If you're a baker, you have to use a recipe, right? Well, well why can't you be creative? Why can't you do it your own way? Because it won't turn out, right? So uh, Christians understand that there are reliable practices, reliable liturgies that result in the love of God. Because, look, it's not something that we can get inside ourselves. It's something that we have to learn. We have to learn it. Um, and so the church is often referred to as, as a school of the Lord's service. It's a school, right? And what do you do in school? Like, this is lost on a lot of people because, you know, modern education's ruined this. But in, in a, in a, in a classic school, or let's just say today, in a classical school, what do students in a classical school do? They rest, they do recitations. I mean, it's like all day. So how do you learn your multiplication tables? By counting in threes and fours and fives and sixes, right? So you go six, 12, 18, 24, 30, right? And you learn to do this and you just line up the kids and you're like, okay, count by six. And they do. And they learn it. And they learn the multiplication tables. It's an amazing thing, right? Because speaking actually drills something into you. Um, Okay. The other thing that I'd say too is the scriptures are abundantly clear on this. Faith comes by what? Our emotions? By hearing. Yeah, so, look, look, God made you, and God knows how your body works, and God knows how you work, and he knows that the surest way to your heart is through your ear. <laughs> Which is just, a, and This is not biologically verifiable, okay? Let's just say that. We're talking about spiritual matters here. Uh, because... It's, the, it's today's Pentecost, right? We we think about Peter's first sermon on on the steps of the temple on that day of Pentecost, and what happens? The hearers, the hearers, it says literally, hearers are cut to the heart um, by his words. Okay. Um, so hearing things is how we receive faith, and um, the quality of those of those prayers matters deeply. It matters deeply because. There's kind of a saying which I love, which is, what you're one with, you're one to. So if you're one with really rich language, really deep teaching, right? And the liturgy teaches, let's be clear about that. Um, You'll be one to it. Okay. All right. Let's move on to the next one. (laughs) Does structured liturgy inhibit sincere and vibrant worship? No. A structured liturgy provides sincere worshipers biblical language and forms that train our hearts for worship. Liturgy enables us to worship God joyfully and with one voice. Okay. So a couple things here. Um, look, everybody wants sincere worship, right? So part of this is just to say like, yes, yes, yes. Um, we don't have a structured liturgy because we hate sincere worship. We don't have a structured liturgy because we hate vibrant worship. Um, although vibrant is a bit of a code word for another thing these days. Uh, but but look, like, you know, the, the truth of it is that ancient Christians probably had the psalms memorized. And they recited them daily. Was that insincere? There's something really wonderful about, actually, when you start to pray the psalms daily in the daily office, one of the things you start to realize is, I actually came to this morning prayer emotionally kind of bleh. I wasn't angry, I wasn't sad, I wasn't happy, I wasn't joyful, I wasn't any of those things. But now I'm reading this psalm, and it's an imprecatory psalm, and it's praying for the visiting of God's justice on my enemies. So what am I reminded of I'm reminded that first I have enemies. Like I can't just sort of sit there and wake up in the morning and say, "Oh, I don't have any enemies. I love everybody." And I'm no. You're reminded that yes, you have enemies, and you're reminded that you should pray for them, and you're reminded that you might even just pray that God will destroy them. Right? Well, why? Because you're human, right? And you and you have those thoughts. You have those emotions. They are real. Um, and the Psalter, what does it do? It gives rise to that. Um, Another example is maybe you're just incredibly happy, right? You just got married, you just like had a baby, and all of a sudden it's the psalms of lament and like terror and blah, and like all of that. Well, what's it doing? It's reminding you that life is not always sunshine and roses, and there will come a day when your sweet little baby turns on you, right, and wants to kill you. So get ready, right? It's leading you to a balanced appreciation of life. So this is really key. It forms you deeply. Um, You know, look, if I showed up at church on Sunday and just said, you know, let me just tell you people what I really want to do today. What I really want to do, and and you'd be horrified, right? Um, Part of the reason you'd be horrified is that is that it, it would just be whatever I want to do. And you wouldn't know what to expect. And some of you have been part of churches like that where you have no idea what to expect. And so part of the problem is that, um, look, I don't like that any more than you do. right? I sort of sit there and say that, that liturgical abuse is a terror. And when you face that, you're getting jerked around. Um, and you're getting manipulated. And I'm just going to call a spade a spade and say that in a lot of churches today, uh, spiritual manipulation, liturgical manipulation of our hearts, of our emotions, of our thoughts is rampant. And what does it lead people to? It leads them to a kind of despair. It leads them to think that um, that, uh, well, on the one hand, either God only loves happy people, which thanks be to God isn't true, uh, or um, God is just angry with everyone all the time. But there's never this balance, right? Um, and certainly, you know, one of the things we do in the liturgy is we enter into the constancy of God, right? Who's not captive to every emotion. He's not captive to happiness, sadness, joy, and you know, all those kinds of things, right? He's, he's, he's God. Um, and, and we enter into his reality in the liturgy. That's the key, right? Okay. So we have to be trained for this. It doesn't come to us naturally. Um, and liturgy enables us, this is the last part, liturgy enables us to worship God joyfully and with one voice. So what's the deal about written liturgy being joyful? Oh, it's so joyful, right? I mean, look, I, I love that uh, Christians, for whatever, you know, however they might break out in hives at written liturgy, they don't break out in hives at written music. So, like, musically, it's like, oh, yeah, we're all going to sing the same song, right? And that's joyous, right? I mean, people breaking out and singing in four-part harmony is joyous. is amazing. Um, Well, Ambrose, the great church father, actually tells us why it's amazing. You can't very well hate your brother when you're singing next to him, right? You can't be at enmity. You can't be at odds because you're singing the same tune. So it actually trains you for harmony with others. And if you want to go even further, there's a there's a, a theologian at Duke named is Jeremy Begbie. He's an Anglican, he's an Anglican priest actually, and he's done great research into uh, kind of the theology of music. And he's found amazing things with other researchers, like for instance, when you sing a song, when you sing a hymn, and they hook, if if you're hooked up to uh, like a um, uh, a CAT scan, while you're singing, you're, the parts of your brain that are associated with empathy light up like a Christmas tree. Why? Because in order to sing, you have to listen to others. Okay? And you not only have to do that, but you have to like take on ideas and thoughts and words that are foreign to you so that you can take them into yourself. That's a really powerful thing. Like, it's a really powerful thing. If you're, if you're ever a teacher, this is just like, this will, this is the dead giveaway. If you begin your class every time by singing a song, no matter how corny, your class will go better. And the reason is simple because it actually builds receptivity. It literally connects with the neurological parts of your brain that are connected with receptivity, empathy, uh, understanding, trying to understand others, trying to set aside your own kind of like thoughts, right? So this is a really big point. What you do to enter, what you do in entering into the into Christian liturgy, is not to sort of like bring your best stuff to the table. What you're doing is you're coming to receive the best stuff um, into yourself. Um, okay. What is the role of Scripture in the prayer book? The Book of Common Prayer is saturated with the Scriptures, organizing and orchestrating them for worship. It helps us to pray together in the words God himself has given us, with order, beauty, joy, deep devotion, and great dignity. All right. So the the Book of Common Prayer is the the text that is sitting on the pews, this lovely uh, text that we have. Um, and it is a a revision of the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer, the first one was um, composed in 1549 by the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, Thomas Cranmer, uh, who was the Archbishop under Henry VIII, and then later uh, for Edward VI. Um, And it was under Edward that he was given the go-ahead because Henry was a conservative theologically and uh, liturgically. And so actually, uh, for all the latter part of the reign of Henry, um, the, uh, the English Protestant liturgy was the Latin Mass. It wasn't even Protestant, it was the Latin Mass, all through Henry. And Edward was, of course, uh, under, he was not of age, so uh, all of the kind of machinations of state uh, pretty much allowed Thomas Kramer to go forward with reforms. And reforms. Uh, and it allowed for an English Translation of the the Latin Mass, which is the first Book of Common Prayer, in essence, with some very substantial changes uh, to that. Later, in 1552, uh, he comes out with a with a far more reformed version of the Book of Common Prayer which lasted about three months before Mary became queen and uh, burned all the prayer books and uh, threw out all the, all the, all the stuff uh, and brought back Catholicism um, in all its forms because she loved it and she was also the daughter of a Roman Catholic. Uh, and, and uh, you know, i will tell you something. Um, and, well, and she was Spanish, you know, like what the heck. Um, so that happened. Uh, And then uh, there's this wonderful thing that happened, the the English settlement, and you have uh, Elizabeth um, who brings back the kind of English-reformed Catholic understandings, and she enshrines them in the prayer books of her time. That's why we refer to the Elizabethan prayer books, so 1559 and following. Um, And that's what we call the settlement. The settlement is this kind of understanding that, hey, both are there. And what you have is this wonderful... Orchestration that comes straight out of Kramer, and is and is continued to this day, of organizing Scripture for prayer. So almost all of the prayer book, all of it is Scripture. Um, like ninety-five percent. Very little of it is is a is a uh, original composition. Um, much of it is translations of ancient collects, things like that. Okay. Um, and it's, I love that these these words. I love. So the catechism, one of the, th- one of the big visions for it was that it would, it would use alliteration often. Um, why? Because it aids memory, right? Um, organizing and orchestrating, right? So what is organize? Well, organize is, you know, you put everything in its right place. Orchestration is, is different. Orchestration is that certain parts have to be Their volume has to be built up, right? So if you if you're conducting an orchestra, one of the real tricks is to is to look over to the flutes and say, "It's your big time now! Come on, come on, come on, come on! Like more, 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 more!" And a really good a really good conductor will be will constantly be looking at the at the parts of the orchestra that need to be brought up, and then he'll be pushing back a little bit like this. If we watch a good conductor, he'll kind of go and then. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the orchestration, right? And you have to have that because if you don't, then certain parts of Scripture will get more play than others. It'll be whatever Pastor Bob wants to talk about Sunday after Sunday, and not this well-orchestrated, theologically robust, and balanced approach. So there's that. Um, okay, reset. Okay, it, it organizes them for worship. It also helps us to pray together in words God himself has given us with order, beauty, joy, deep devotion, and great dignity. And on the day of Pentecost, I should note, uh, one of the great misunderstandings of the work of the Holy Spirit is this understanding that the work of the Holy Spirit is sent to breed chaos, <laughs> right? The Holy Spirit, I once heard a friend pray that the Holy Spirit would come among us and mess us up, and I thought, as a good Episcopalian boy, I thought, that's wrong. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, What is? what do we read in the first few chapters of Genesis, the Holy Spirit doing? The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Brings order out of chaos, actually. So so what we should read on the day of Pentecost is not something like the, the church is sort of stirred up to psychotic... Uh, crazy, chaotic action. But what? People are actually brought into right order. Um, This is why, you know, you should understand that speaking in tongues is not about breaking order. It's actually about ordered worship. This is something that's been incredibly brought to mind to me um, because as I've studied this gift of tongues, one of the things I've really come to understand is that Um, in the ancient church, the gift of tongues was meant to be an ordered thing. That's why Paul talks about how it should be exercised in an orderly fashion. Well, why? Because the gift is not to be ecstatic. The gift is to be rightly ordered. Um, Well, how should we say that? Well, in the ancient world, uh, gifts of speech and oratory were understood to be rightly ordered in their best expressions. But it wasn't just that. It was that um it's like this it's our minds that are disordered and when the holy spirit comes down upon us in our minds what we utter out of that order sounds like chaos it sounds like gibberish but makes more sense than we do <laughs> right so 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 one of the one of the best commentators on this says basically this that uh, what happens in the gift of ecstatic tongues in, in Scripture is it's something like this. God gives you a word to say, maybe many words, and your mind can't comprehend them. And it takes a while for you to catch up to what's being said. So what's uttered in the time is gibberish. It doesn't make sense. It's wild. Um, but it's actually ordered, if you can see beyond what, what you hear, Right? Because what you'll actually get when this happens um, is you'll get something like this outpouring of of almost like foolish talk, right, that sounds foolish but it's not, Uh, that is later uh, interpreted, right, either by the speaker or by someone else who says, oh, I think I know what God's saying, and now I'm going to say it. In, in English, right? Or whatever the word is, right? Well, this is an amazing thing. It's an amazing fact. Um, I once served a bishop who, who, uh, uh, at ordinations, would speak in tongues. And he did in other times, but, but here's what he was basically doing, is he was praying something that the language he speaks, English or Spanish, he spoke both, uh, could not express adequately before praying the words which he was prescribed in the prayer book to pray for the ordination. Do you see what's going on? So, like, I want you to hear this on Pentecost. It's like, there is not a gigantic difference between this kind of chaotic, blah, 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 the, the, te- the the speaking in tongues, and written liturgy. They're actually, like, very close. Very close. And in the ancient church, they were understood to be part of the same order. Um, which is great. Uh, so, so just a thought. Um so even the thing that many people will bring up is like, but that's the example of why we need extemporaneous prayers. Like, er, try again. It's not. Because Paul says, no, 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 no. Like, it's got to be ordered. And of course, Paul actually says, I would rather speak five minds, five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. Right? Because he understands that if, if what he, if he speaks what he understands and what you understand, then it's of great value. Okay. So that's the other thing about uh a written liturgy in the language of the people, which is the English and Anglican way, uh which is to have uh, uh the liturgy be in a language understood by the people. Um which used to be unique, it's not anymore. Um is uh is of such value. It's like, well, it's deeply instructive. Okay. Um how does the Book of Common Prayer organize corporate worship? The prayer book orders our daily, weekly, and seasonal prayer and worship. It also provides liturgies for significant events of life. So there was just a baby born in the parish, you know, you got a Thanksgiving for the birth of a child. Like, it's, it's very straightforward, right? Um, and in fact, in the old days, if you had a baby and you wanted to come to church, uh, you went through this thing called the churching of women, which is not this, you know, misogynistic thing. It's like, hey, you've been gone for a while. Uh, let's give thanks for a healthy labor and for, for living through this very dangerous event. And, uh, and you know, good, you're back. You know, this is really a great thing It's to be marked in that way. Uh, things like adopting a child, things like, uh, like getting married, you know, all those things are included in the prayer book. It's all there. Um, it also orders our daily, weekly, and seasonal prayers. So you get all the kind of like Liturgical seasons as well as uh, daily and weekly. All right, what is the daily office? The daily office includes the services of morning and evening prayer. In them, we confess our sins and receive absolution, hear God's word and praise Him with psalms, and offer the church's thanksgivings and prayers. Okay, so if you're not, I'm just going to say this: if you're not in the habit of praying in the daily office, it's something worth picking up. Um, at the very least, you know, before you go to bed, maybe pray pray Compline, which actually isn't a part of the daily office, but it's it's kind of like the uh, the gateway drug to the uh, daily office. So if you're interested in doing something like that, you know Compline's short, if you like it, you're going to like it, da- you're going to like the daily office. Um, but the daily office is morning and evening prayer out of the prayer book. Uh, I'm always blown away by how many people at Christchurch are praying in the daily office on a daily basis. It's a wonderful help. Uh, we pray the morning morning office here at Christchurch Monday through Friday at 7:30 in the morning, so you're without excuse there are other people doing it and you can show up for that. Um, but, but basically it's two readings, Psalms, confession and absolution, prayers, time for intercession, and then you're done. So what's it doing? Well, it's building a balanced life, right? It's not all one thing and not another. So it's this, again, this idea of organizing and orchestrating. I love that. Okay. How is the daily office observed? The daily office is primarily designed for corporate prayer. It may also be used by individuals or families in public or private, in whole or in part. Okay. So you don't have to do all of the daily office. You can do parts of it. And the way you know that is by the little italicized sections, which say, at this point, this may be done, which means you may do it. You don't have to, right? Um, so that's one way to shorten it deeply is just like, the parts that are optional don't do them. Um, but the other way to do it is uh, to uh, to uh, consider the difference between public and private. So we pray morning prayer here publicly. Uh, you can sit with the prayer book in private and pray the daily office. All you need is a a prayer book and a Bible, and you got everything you need. Um, The other thing that I would say, too, is that it can also be done uh, by individuals or families. And one of the things that's hard for people as individuals to get about the daily office is like, well, should I change all of the third-person language to to first-person language? And the answer is absolutely not. Because you pray this as part of a praying church, which is always we and not I. So I, you know, I've, I've loved this. Uh, uh, I remember actually being on a plane full of Anglicans landing at Heathrow Airport. Okay, full of Anglicans. And what 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 was happening on the plane at 8:30 in the morning as breakfast was being served? Prayer books were whipped out. Morning prayer was prayed individually by everyone on, by a lot of people on that plane. Um, and of course, because we were about to land in England, we prayed for the Queen. Right. So. So we all prayed it individually, but guess what? It was an example of we prayed it corporately. Do you see what's going on? So I know all those people, and they're praying the daily office all over the world, praying the same things I'm praying, reading the same readings I'm reading. Uh, very often at Church it'll come up like, hey, did you read the reading from yesterday and the day? Oh, my goodness, wasn't that? And then I, I learned so much, and that's kind of one way to look at it. Okay, last question. Why do we pray the daily office? We pray the daily office because by it we learn the scriptures, join with the church in prayer, mark our days with praise to God, and sanctify our time. This is time for personal testimony. I have never in my life read more scripture than in the daily office, and I've never learned more scripture than in the daily office, and I've never taken scripture in a deep way that relates to everyday life in a better way than in the daily office. And finally, um, it sanctifies time. That's the other one I want to say uh, and draw attention to. Um, our days very quickly drift off into secularity because that's, that is our mother tongue, by the way, is secularity, okay? All we know is secularity. We know uh, disembodied, uh, chaotic, Uh, imminent life. That's it. We're disenchanted. And in order to get that back, what we lost uh, through the fall of modernism, basically, (laughs) is to get back daily prayer. You have to pray daily. You have to get into it. And that's the reason for our rule. So just to put it for you, you should be crafting a rule of life. You should have one that you check on, that you think through, that you work on. Anyway, all that. Have a good one. Oh good oh. Hey, hey, hey so the red cassocks didn't fit <laughs>